The same can happen in democracy, where if we don't value it and protect it and 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 engage in it, you know, we will see it dismantle. We will see it um, be eroded and undermined. And America is a great nation, but American democracy is not immune from the other countries that where we have seen democracies die and we've seen democracies erode. And it is our job to protect it. But just like, you know, money has value because we give it value, democracy works because we do it. Welcome to People in Common. I'm Jama. The world's problems right now are big and overwhelming. And we feel farther apart than ever. But we aren't sure what to do. This is a series of conversations with incredible people offering inspiration and practical guidance about how to save our planet and the people on it. We lift up the stories from the front lines to help us meet this moment. We are people in common. So glad you joined us. Kelly Ward Burton believes that we have to do democracy to save democracy. She is the founding president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee with former President Barack Obama and former Attorney General Eric Holder. I am so honored to speak with someone who is going to the very heart of the matter, a fair structure for our democracy, so that we can be people in common. Welcome, Kelly, to the People in Common podcast. We are so happy to have you today. Kelly has been here since the very beginning, since this idea was literally just a germ. And now here we are in a recording studio Yay! doing a podcast. So, so you are here because you are an amazing human, but especially because when the producer asked me, who are the people, who are the people, underlined capitals, the people who have gotten others to act, I immediately thought of Kelly Ward Burton. In a few sentences, Kelly Ward Burton, who are you? I am a mom. I am a, I am a wife. I am a believer that big things can happen. Uh, I am worried about the state of our democracy, but I am hopeful in how we are all going to come together to protect it and fix it and save it. And that is what I am today. I wanted to start us with the 40 days of democracy for Kelly's 40th birthday. I'll quote from your husband's email. Kelly's 40th birthday will be observed by all of us for the 40 days that follow. As you may know, Kelly is very difficult to buy gifts for. She doesn't like stuff, she doesn't like attention, and she doesn't love people going out of their way for her. What does she like? Democracy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. 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 So we were all we were all asked to participate in the most soul-lifting experience of 2020 by far, um, which was Tell us what you're doing to save democracy. And so how did that feel for, for 40 of your closest friends to do that? Tell me about that. Uh, there's a million things to say. The, what, the most hilarious thing about that experience is that it was the perfect gift for me. But the, that means that the perfect gift for me is to give all of my favorite, closest friends and family work to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here are your action items. And... 
I would like to have accountability on what you're doing with those action items. Where are we on our progress to goals? And there is a reporting structure and you are accountable to all of these fabulous people in this email chain. And so that was the perfect gift for me. <laughs> it's like, sit with that for a minute. And it was, and it was, indeed it was. <laughs> and the fact that my husband and friends knew that and were here for all of it, it just fills my soul with so much joy. <laughs> And it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful experience. And, you know, I think the other undercurrent as a reminder to what you're saying is that it was the peak of COVID. So we were all locked in our homes, um, couldn't see each other, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. Um, and I think not just for a 40th birthday, you know, how can we still celebrate, but also that need for community was really just important. It's always important, but I think we were all feeling that need to reconnect and have community. And then, you know, as you noted, my, my birthday is at the end of September, so we we're right on the cusp of the election. And one of the things I think is I, I feel very blessed about is that the people in my world and in, in our world do care a lot are doing a lot and want to do more and want to do a lot. And so just creating a forum to, you know, inspire people to do more, to provide a community and a space to work together on those items, to have, you know, some shared experience in the election, even though we were all separated and doing that from our, our respective houses, wherever we might be in the world was just really uplifting, I think, for me and for everyone. Hats off to Bill Burton and my wonderful friends who pulled that off and circulated their action items to each other about what they did. Yeah. Which I will say for the record, Jamie Adams came in strong, y'all. She, yeah. And if just to give you an indication of the, your host, Jamie was assigned day one for a reason because she could kick this off with a high bar of what the expectation was for democracy action um, and also helped really help build that community that then sustained. So thank you for being day one and for making all that come to life. It's wonderful. That is the best use of peer pressure. I've I don't know, maybe ever been a part of. <laughs> we just kept one-upping each I mean, and leave it all on the line, right? Every time you talk to Kelly, you know, she will remind you, this This is existential stuff, guys. This is, you know, we're talking about democracy here. Talk about the work that you do every day these days. Uh, well, I run an organization called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which is an umbrella organization with multiple affiliates where our, our job, our mission is to have a fair redistricting process in the uh, congressional and state legislative redistricting that will be happening around the country this cycle and make sure that the outcome of those redistricting processes in the states are fair, that we have fair and equitable maps that are responsive to the will of the people, and that we don't see what we saw the last time that this country was redistricted, which was rampant gerrymandering um, that manipulated maps so that the outcomes were predetermined and made it very difficult for voters to have an impact on the outcome of their elections. And, and we want to undo that and make sure that the next decade we have congressional and state legislative maps that are responsive to the people. And so that is what we are doing every day. Talk a little bit about the history and sort of where we've been and then the amazing work you've already done and where we're going. Well, you know, it's funny. Prior to NDRC, I worked at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which focuses on 
um, electing Democrats to the House. So I was very familiar with the House map. I spent a lot of time, um, you know, understanding these districts, learning these districts, um, and and watching how difficult it was for the the will of the voters to actually be reflected in the outcome of those districts. You asked earlier one of the th- what what I am. One of the things I am is I am very focused on structural change and how do you get to the heart of the matter. And I'm, I'm just a big believer that if we really want to have an impact on the world and to make things better, we have to get to the to the structural impediments that are standing in the way. And for me, I watched the House of Representatives become this very polarized uh, legislative body that was more focused on blocking President Obama's agenda or on, um, you know, the playing to the the base of um, both parties instead of actually trying to solve problems and actually trying to do what the American people needs. And you see this with, you know, issue after issue, whether it's gun violence prevention or climate change or um, education or women's reproductive rights. You know, these these issues are supported by the vast majority of Americans. They're They're not technically controversial to a lot of people, but yet they are seemingly very controversial to a legislative body because of the politics of what's driving those members based on the districts in which they represent. And to me, fixing that, like that's a real structural problem in in our democracy, but really fixing it and, and finding the heart of that structural problem is in the maps and it and it is undoing that fundamental first step of who the how the people get to Congress, how they get to the state legislature, um, who they're representing once they're there. And so after working in these congressional districts for so long, it really became clear to me that we have to redo these maps in order to fix this kind of structural polarization and this this structural problem that we are seeing in our democracy where the legislative bodies just don't reflect the vast majority of what Americans want. And so I took on redistricting um, because it's it is that it's the opportunity to try again to make sure that we have maps that actually reflect the voters and aren't predetermined based on the political interests of the people who drew the maps. So that's a long way of answering your question about what's fair. You know, to me, what is fair is if the rules of the game are set and everyone knows the rules and they play them fairly, then the outcome is determined by who plays that game the best. And, you know, that's great. Um, same like we would teach our kids, the same like we would expect in any other setting where, you know, you want, you don't want it to be rigged against you or against the other person. You just, you want a level playing field. You want to know that you are going to be judged and and succeed or fail based on the merits of your ideas, based on, you know, the work that you do and that we don't see that in our democracy right now. Redistricting to me is an opportunity to get back to fairness, to get back to kind of the rules of the game are set and the expectation that the outcome will reflect who, what the people want. And that's what it should be. It seems so obvious. (laughs) Zero things that you said just now are controversial. But the people that we write on our ballot or fill in the bubble for have an incentive structure that prevents them from doing smart good things in the public interest, the things that we want them to do. Make that link again, just make it very simply for us. At the end of the day, the people who are elected get there by the votes of the people 
in their district or in their state or in the country, whatever the election might be, right? Like at the end of the day, votes matter and votes get you that job of being an elected official to then be able to make decisions, right? And so you want the actual preference of the people who vote to be the determinant factor of those outcomes. And what happens when a district is gerrymandered is that the, 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 it means the map has been drawn in such a way that the outcome of the election is predetermined based on where the lines are drawn. So that almost like no matter what the voters do in that area, the, the, the people who represent that district are predetermined um, to, to be of a certain party or to be of a certain political stripe. Um, and that even if the voters don't want that, if they are mad at that person for taking votes that that community disagrees with, there's almost nothing that the voters can do about it because the, the, the outcome of the district is already predetermined. And that is, that's demoralizing. It's not how democracy should work. It makes it very difficult to hold elected officials accountable. The, the link is that at the end of the day, elected officials are still determined by the votes, right? Like the incentive structure for electeds is to get reelected, right? They still want it's like it, it, which no shame, right? That's not bad. We all do jobs. Well, it's all it's it's diff, it, it's not different than any jobs that that we all have where we do our job because we believe in it and we have purpose and we want to keep our job. And so we try to do things where we're going to keep our job and not get fired. And that is the same thing with elected officials. They want to keep their job so they don't get fired because they want to keep doing their job. And the the incentive structure for elected officials is the voters, but you want to make sure that the voter, the power of the decision is actually with the voters and the power of the decision isn't outside of the voters, whether it's because the map is manipulated. And so no matter what, that district is going to be elected by a Republican, regardless of whether those voters like what the Republican Party stands for at that particular moment, right? That's not fair. That means the power is in the map. The power is not in the hands of the voters. Or if we have a system where the power is in the hand of the special interests and they get to determine the election outcomes based on money or based on influence, you're, you're skewing the system so that the incentive structure is outside of the hands of the voters and into something else. And that's what we constantly need to check against in a democracy to make sure that we're keeping the power in the hands of the people so that, to your question about incentive, the incentive for the elected officials to keep their job is in serving the people the best that they can. And that is why we have to keep the, the, the districts and the power and the influence to be as close to the people as it possibly can. And it also gets to the reason why people, in some cases, rightly feel that their vote doesn't matter. The situation you right. just described, if I cast my vote in a gerrymandered district, it it doesn't matter. The outcome has been predetermined. That is sort of the root cause of all of the sort of democracy crumbling. Well, it is very much a root cause. However, the thing to remember, and this is why I think redistricting is so exciting. I, stay with me. I know I'm, I'm <laughs> redistricting is so exciting. I'll say it again, um, is because there is a chance to fix it. That's the thing. Redistricting is like a campaign. It's like there's, it's like an election. It's like an opportunity to redo it. 
and to redo the maps. And that doesn't, it only happens every 10 years, but it does happen and it's happening right now. That is why right now is so exciting because it's it's like having a campaign. Let's say that there is an elected official that has just been doing your community wrong and you are just waiting for the election to be able to hold that person accountable. Like we all were waiting for 2020 to hold Donald Trump accountable. We were like, holy bananas, this guy's crazy. And, but we live in a democracy, and so we don't overthrow the government. We wait until the next election, and then we overthrow our government through the vote, right, and through the power of the people. And we did that in 2020 with Donald Trump. The same thing is true now with the state legislatures and with Congress, that if you have an elected official that is not serving your community, where you are, your, vo your vote is not determining the outcome of the election, this is the opportunity to reset the map so that they are fair, they are responsive to the people, and they then put those districts are then put in place for 10 years. Like, this is our moment. This is our moment to fix it. And, and redistricting has to happen. It's in the Constitution. Like, it has to happen. Gerrymandering does not have to happen. So let's make sure that we understand the difference. But it will happen and then it will be done. And so we have this moment in time where we can we can influence the process and we can help shape the outcome of the maps, um, which is not always the case, right? It's not always the case that you can fight back against some structural impediment in our democracy and, and do something about it. The, the opportunity to do something about the maps through the registering process literally right now is exciting. And you've spent four years leading to this moment. You know, tell us about what's led to this and what you're excited about right now. Well, it's funny, you know, when we started NDRC four years ago, we did so because of what we've been talking about, you know, watching Congress become more polarized, watching state legislatures become more extreme and not paying attention um, to what the voters in the states want. You know, watching the increase in polarization and the decrease in um, rational problem solving, you know, and knowing that the maps were a part of that. And so starting trying to put together, you know, we, we launched with the intention of putting together a comprehensive redistricting plan to make sure that we could lead up to the process to get it be to get it to be as fair as possible once it started and then which is where we are now and then to execute a fair redistricting process so that the outcome was fair maps right so like we went into it with a six-year plan to say okay we have four years to shift the balance of power on the people who control the process so that it can be as fair as possible and then we have you know two years in the redistricting cycle to um, to get that done what we didn't realize, though, is that this issue would be as prescient as it is right now, given the state of our democracy, right? Like, given how fragile we have learned our democracy is, and given how we now have one political party who is very openly willing to undermine and dismantle the structures of our democracy in order to hold on to power, and they are actively trying to pull that power away from the people. Gerrymandering is part of that. It is it is a tool for them to do that. It is a part of voter suppression. It is a part of manipulating the structures of democracy against the people. And that is the moment of time that we are in. So when we started four years ago, we knew that redistricting was important. But I think you know, what we are seeing now is that it is very much, it, it's incredibly important, some might say existential, that we get this right, because democracy really is on the line right now. I think important to mention that when she says, when Kelly says we started, she is talking about the former Attorney General Eric Holder, 
the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, and the amazing, the incredible, Kelly Ward Burton. I think you're exactly right that this was an inside baseball, in the weeds kind of a situation. And as you said, everyone is pretty aware now about how central it is now to what we need to do. This is a podcast about how people can get involved and get engaged. And uh, one of the things, and I, and you know, I suppose this is true with anything, um, but one of the things that often happens in in politics or in campaigns or advocacy or social change is that um, it takes so much legwork and nitty gritty preparation and organizing and planning way before people are actually paying attention, right? Campaigns are a good example where, you know, most voters, if you ask them when the campaign starts, they would say like a few weeks before the actual election because that's when they start to get the mail or that's when they start to see ads on TV or that's when they start to, you know, see signs around town. Um, But the people working on those campaigns started years ago or, you know, months and years prior, right, to get prepared for that moment. And so that's kind of what we were on redistricting, you know, years before the actual process was in place. Folks who really understand the impact of the maps that were watching very closely the impact of gerrymandering on our democracy started to be like, okay, yo, we got to get organized, y'all. Like, we, don't, we cannot let the same thing happen that happened last time where the Republicans controlled everything. And we have to get organized, we have to get ready, and we have to start now to put the legwork into you know, a plan um, and into the, the blocking and tackling and, and the, all of the components of an organizing plan to get ready for the process. And so you know, I think one of those pieces of our strategy was to increase awareness about this issue. So I, it's, it's very exciting to me when people understand what gerrymandering means and that why this issue is so important because we've put a lot of work into trying to explain it and to get people to feel connected to it and understand why it's so important. But it's not different than other you know, social change issues or campaigns or other um, movements that you see where it just, the, the, the folks doing the work are doing so much work uh, in, the, in the preparation phase way before people actually see the outcome of that work. And um, so I, you know, we're not different than that. We just, we, we knew there was a problem and we had four years to get ready for the process. And so we started the organizing and the planning and um, all, the, all the work that it takes to, to be ready. It is a testament to who you are that that kind of a job, you have the kind of mind and discipline that needed to happen <laughs> to make that true. Well, you need a plan, right? So you always gotta, you gotta have a vision you got to set some goals and you got to have some strategies to get toward those goals and you got to have some tactics and some accountability on how you're going to get that done. And that's what we did. You make a plan. Uh, you know, and one of the things you alluded to this, but one of the things that was, I think, really exciting about how NDRC came together is that it really it was and is a recognition by a, a broad array of leaders that the gerrymandering of the last decade is such a problem for our democracy. And so working together to have a plan to not let that happen again um, was uh, was just a really exciting process and also an exciting outcome of, you know, all, all kinds of different 
entities and people that came together, you know, led by President Obama and, and AG Holder. And I was just happy to, you know, be running the meetings and running the implementation. But, you know, it was also bringing together the, well, a lot of the progressive community, you know, um, Speaker Pelosi is very involved and, and was very involved in the genesis of this organization. Our board is made up of the political committee's uh, intentionally, because it's an indication of, you know, people across the Democratic Party and the progressive movement really understanding that we need to get get together and have a plan for redistricting. So it, you know, it was a cross section of support and a, and a real coming together um, from, you know, progressives, labor, committees, the political community, you know, uh, the leaders of our party to say, let's all work together on a plan. And that was just a really exciting thing to be a part of. You would never say this, but there aren't too many people who can bring that kind of community together and keep that coalition and that community together. Talk about how that's been. I mean, thank you for saying that. You know, I think shared purpose is how we keep all communities together, right? And a shared experience, shared purpose. And one of the things that we are really um that we feel and that we are trying to share all the time is that democracy is a shared experience and it is a shared purpose. And how we all come together to protect our democracy and to address these, you know, seemingly challenging and also nuanced and technical details of the structures of democracy, like redistricting, understanding why that is so important and also what we can do about it and and helping to create an environment where that is its own shared purpose is something that we believe deeply and, and we work on every day, um, it, both within our organization and then also with, um, you know, the volunteers and the the organizations on the ground in the states that we work with every day um, to just you know create this shared experience together. We have to we have to do democracy to save democracy. That is how this is going to go. I don't know if this is a great metaphor, but it, it's kind of like money. Money has inherent value because we give it value. Democracy is the same thing. Like it happens because we all agree and and participate and we believe it and maintain it in the same way that if you know societies question the value of their money you have real problems in your economy and you know and that piece of paper no longer has that same value the same can happen in democracy where if we don't value it and protect it and 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 engage in it, you know, we will see it dismantle. We will see it um, be eroded and undermined. And America is a great nation, but American democracy is not immune from the other countries that where we have seen democracies die and we've seen democracies erode. And it is our job to protect it. But just like, you know, money has value because we give it value, democracy works because we do it and we participate in it. And the people who are against democracy, part of their strategy is to get people to not engage in it, right? Because it's just, it's its own unraveling. So the minute that we, you know, question whether democracy works, or the minute that we think that the elections don't work, or the minute that we stop engaging or stop voting because it just doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. We like, we create our own reality. We create our own truth by disengaging then the then the democracy is now be, not protected or preserved it, we we've all sort of given up on it and we we cannot let that happen 
it, it is inherently the the way that the the people who don't want democracy to work because they want to have the power in their own hands want you to feel demoralized. They want you to disengage. They want you to think that the system doesn't work because then that gives them even more power within the system. And so our shared experience is to not let that happen, is to you know stay motivated every single day that through the act of doing democracy, we will strengthen and, and preserve the democracy in which we live. Full stop. Yes. Who do you think of? What is a good example of anti-democracy to hold on for for one person or one group of people taking action to hold on to power and thus eroding democracy? What does that look like? Well, we saw it in the 2020 election, right? We saw it with Donald Trump. Where we see it with the big lie, where if you can question the validity of the election just based on saying it, and then you keep saying it, and you have an, an audience of people who believe you, then that drumbeat feeds on itself. And then it creates this environment of questions of, is is the election credible? I this people that I trust are saying it's not. So I don't know. Now I'm in doubt. Now, I, now I'm questioning. And then that creates an ecosystem that we're seeing right now in the states where Republican legislatures are um, justifying voter suppression and justifying constraints on our election because they think they need to protect against this you know, perceived weakness in our democracy that the elections don't work or aren't credible, which was planted by Trump intentionally, and they're now creating an ecosystem where they're reacting to a problem that they created that doesn't actually exist, right? Like that is what's happening. And look, and the antidote to that is to not let them do that, right? The antidote is to to believe and to understand that our elections are sound and the election was not rigged or manipulated or stolen in any ways that this, you know, and to tell your friends and to continue to participate and to not, you know, allow these these frauds, for example, that are happening in the states to, to plant the seed um, with your neighbors that there is something wrong with our elections. There's not, right? It's, it's sort of up to all of us to push back on this environment of questioning that they're trying to create. So anyway, that's a long way, but that's an example. I mean, we are living it right now, an example of how, you know, one side of the equation wants an outcome and so creates a reality that the other side has to live within. Uh, and, and we just have to constantly push back and question um, and, and not accept the premise that they're putting in front of us. How do we engage across the super politicized lines and it's not just Democratic and Republican. There's all kinds of lines. What is your strategy for transcending some of this? You spoke very eloquently to what our job is, which is to say, when we know this election was sound, we need to say that and not allow people to just make up something that then becomes the truth. I'm curious about the language especially. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of layers to it. I think that those of us who are doing the work of democracy and right now this moment and see the existential threat that we are facing and are fighting back on all of these fronts, whether it's voter suppression or gerrymandering or the bills that are passing through state legislatures, you know, all of these different things that we're dealing with and, um, and we're addressing and, and we see the long game of implications on our democracy if these things 
are in place, right? And the, and there's a um, there are a universe of people who do this work. Our charge, our challenge, is to translate that work to the general public in a way that they understand and feel connected to their lives. It, you know, I, I think sometimes about the early movement on climate change, where, you know, the scientists and the folks who know the science and, and were tracking climate and understand what's happening, they were like, oh my God, you guys, this is so bad. And the rest of us were like, what are you talking about? We don't understand. It's fine. Right. And we're a little bit of that right now. We're like, oh my God. And everyone's like, what? Well, it's fine. Yeah. What are you talking about? And, you know, there's not really a language. There's not really, we're having to prove a negative, right? Or we're, we're having to, to try to show now what could happen then if the following things are put into place. And that's a very hard story to tell. So I do think that we have the burden of finding language and finding um, an approach that will connect with people and help explain and understand why we think democracy is at stake and and what we are dealing with. And and that is something that we have to continue to improve and, and make sure that we are you know, doing and communicating with the public in a way that is digestible and and folks understand. That's number one. But number two, which is also the kind of other side of the coin of what you're saying, is that don't forget, in, in, in a lot of issues, it is a strategy to use the language of the other side to confuse the voter so that they throw their hands up and say, what? Right. So if you go back and you look at the Republicans, what they did on Obamacare, this is exactly what they did when when they when we were in the ACA fight and functionally, truthfully, what the Republican policy put on the table would cut Medicare and what the Democrats were putting on the table would strengthen Medicare. The Republican ads against the Democrats would say they want to cut Medicare. And then the Democratic ads would be like, they want to cut Medicare. And the voters are like, ah, I'm so confused. Does everyone, I like Medicare. Can, can we all like Medicare? I don't understand. Can't we all just get along? Right. And so, so no voter, no voter wants to say democracy is bad and we shouldn't have one anymore. Right. And so it's not a messaging strategy for the folks who are trying to undermine democracy for their own power to own that and say that truthfully, that it would work against them. Right. So, of course, the folks who are doing this work, they know what they're doing. And they know how to message it so that it's not clear to the voters what they're doing. Now, I will say that, you know, look, democracy is about power, right? And it is about who has the power. And we believe that the power in a democracy is with the people. That is where it should be. It's, it's in the bill. It's like we call it the For the People Act, right? It's like that's what it is. It's for the people. This is all the things you have to do to make sure the democracy is for the people, right? The, the people who are against that, they want democracy, but they want the power within the democracy to be in a different place. They want it to be in, in them winning. It's all about winning. It's not about power in the hands of the people and then you go convince the people to do what you want them to do. No, no. It's like that's hard and that's exhausting. And by the way, a lot of what the Republicans want, the people don't want. And so they have to instead manipulate the systems so that they still have the, the power of determining the outcome is in a different place than with the people. 
And so that they're not going to say that that's not democracy. It is democracy, but it's a democracy where it's harder for certain people to vote, where special interests and, and uh, you know, corporate money has a lot of power. It's where the skew is toward a set of people that they want to have the power indefinitely, and they will skew the systems to make sure that that happens. And look, this has been a tension in our democracy since the beginning, right? We started as a country where a small number of privileged white men with property had the voting power, and we have been expanding and expanding and expanding that power over the course of our country because of a lot of hard work and a lot of of pain and suffering, largely by people of color, that have really fought to make this country what we say we are. And the, and to to live and be the democracy that we say we want to be. And there are now, as there were then, forces that fight against that. And, and we have to continue to do what we have been doing for the history of our country to fight against those forces. And we do it within a democracy. That is the, that is the thing that's existential right now, is that in order for a democracy to function truly, you need two parties committed to the act of, de- of democracy, to the principles of consent of the governed, to the accept- accepting of elections as the determining vehicle for, for who has power. And right now, one party is making a choice to not believe in those things anymore because they see that their path to holding onto power is not through that anymore, or it's harder, or it's questioned if we have those structures in place. And so what is different is that over the course of the history of our country, we have, the two parties have worked within the structures of a democracy to continue to to push for the outcomes that they want. And we now have one party that is completely trying to erode those structures of democracy in order to predetermine the outcomes. And that is what we have to fight against. That's what makes it different right now. You have shown up so incredibly throughout your life. Tell me where that comes from. Where does the the deep commitment to this work come from? I personally, I mean, I think everyone's story is different. For me, I have just always had a, a bent toward justice. And ever since I was little, when I would see any kind of injustice in the world, I would just feel it in my core and didn't understand why it should be that way. You know, whether it's poverty or homelessness or um, violence or, you know, kids that that need more than they have and, and couldn't get it for whatever reason. Like, I just never understood why that happened and why that was okay. And so the drive for me to eradicate injustice has just been deep in my um, ethos since I was little. And as I got older and really tried to solve problems, right, like we teach our kids to be problem solvers, like, like if you are going to solve this problem, at the end of the day, what will solve the problem? And how do you not just serve the problem, but solve the problem? And that has always been something that I have tried to get smarter at and to, you know, really at the end of the day, cut out the clutter, you know, eliminate the noise and get to the heart of the matter. What, how do you solve this problem? And that's what I've always tried to focus on. And, um, and so 
you know, it's like the, the problems that will eliminate injustice and how do we solve them is like my jam. <laughs> it's like where I'm at. Um, and, you know, you, you know, we can't do that alone. And so it takes community. It takes people. It takes, you know, a whole group of working together to make that happen. So that's what I try to do every day. And you are our fearless leader. Thank you, Kelly Ward-Burton. You are incredible. I'm so happy we got to do this. I just want to state for the record that I thought this podcast should be named Mamma Jamma because Jama is the Mamma Jamma. I don't know if y'all know that, but you will. We got the Mamma Jamma here. And so thank you, Jama Adams, for what you are doing for the world every day. We are so lucky to have you. <laughs> Bless you, my friend. So Kelly told us, we have to do democracy to save democracy. To get involved, go to their website at democraticredistricting.com. We are people in common. So glad you joined us. Thank you for listening.